so first we just wanted to like for you to tell us a little bit about your work and kind of specifically about your research into this commodification of LGBTQIE community and histories. Um, I mean, I'm trained as an artist and yeah. so I think looking at public space is actually how I worked with LGBTQ, mm-hmm. as an LGBTQ person myself and as a, as a uh, gay activist when I was a kid. Um, it's sort of just mingled in together as a, as a one, one thing for me. And I think as an artist, um, you sort of have to relate if you work in public space, what kind of space it is. And you sort of have to try and understand what space you are interacting with. And at, at the time I was doing it, I could see, you know, uh, uh, gentrification processes and take over a public space. Uh, you know, you would see benches that you couldn't lie on. You would see designs that were sort of introduced into public space that was sort of uh, trying to control people's behavior. And that sort of coincides then with sort of like uh, 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 LGBTQ circulations of these spaces. So for me, it, it uh, I started out, I mean, I've done, of course, a lot of different projects, but there was one project that sort of stand out from others was that I, in 2001, there was this gay cruising park. I don't know if you've been there in Hosterstes Park in, in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. That was uh, all the all the shrubs and bushes was removed like uh, uh, some winter, yeah. and and um, and it was kind of clear that you know it was the city trying to prevent uh, uh, men cruising mostly. But it was also different, other different kind of uh, inhabitation of the park that they were trying to control, and it all came by because of uh, the neighborhood next to it was uh, gentrifying rapidly. So suddenly it was different uh, demographics, and you know, uh, and so basically it was like a daughter of a city council member that lived in that neighborhood that would complain about when she goes to the park mm-hmm. with the, her dog. You know, she would find all these uh, condoms. And uh, of course, I was sort of wondering why usually if you want to solve a problem but by trash, you would put up trash cans, but instead they just to clean out all the shrubs and bushes. And so what I did was I rented that summer, I rented a bunker uh, on, underneath because a lot of the shelters, bunker shelters yeah. in the park. And I rented one of them, you can rent it from the city to do whatever. And I said, I was doing an exhibition. And I basically made an artificial bush room downstairs and I had open at nighttime from 11 to 3, I think, uh, p.m. Um, to 3 a.m. And I would invite the gay community to come and use it. And by doing that, I went out with flyers uh, and the reaction I got then was so harsh. Like, you know, people would say, I don't use those places. I don't understand why people are, you know, frequented them and it was clearly that that sort of post uh, uh, partnership laws in Denmark and marriage there had really uh, there's really been a split in the community and so yeah so that sort of started out my 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 practice yeah. in some ways thinking about it yeah mm-hmm. um, for instance, in, in queer geographies um, you explore different contexts, different queer contexts found in Copenhagen, Beirut and Tijuana. Mm-hmm. How do they differ or compare from one another? 
Uh, I mean, of course, it's a kind of a coincidence that it became these cities. I mean, mm -hmm. I was asked in Copenhagen, there was the first queer festival, if I would do something. And I thought about, because I had done these, this project in the park, I've been thinking a lot about uh, sort of also uh, what does the, I, you know, the, the differ between LGBT and Q uh, to being queer. It seemed to be like after post-marriage, there was a lot of groups sort of uh, connected under the umbrella of being queer and that's often seemed like these powerless spaces and I was sort of thinking when people start identifying as it becomes also more powerful so I was sort of curious if, if we could think about design and architecture in a way that was uh, uh, less a powerless space but more sort of we were in the forefront of what kind of spaces we want mm. so that's why we did like also we did like a, a secret bush planting and stuff like that um so that are you still there yeah yeah, yeah. okay you're just freezing so that, oh. that brought up the the idea of uh, um making a queer geography workshop mm -hmm. and uh, uh to sort of talk about these things but also because i had the feeling that queer in queer theory was one thing and how queer life is lived was another thing um, it doesn't always correspond. So I wanted sort of to create a more empirical workshop. So it was like a three-day workshop. And the first day we sort of just, we were like eight people. We were just talking about what queer meant for us individually and uh, not sort of uh, trying to sort of put labels on it from a, uh, a theoretical point, mm -hmm. but sort of just, uh, and then trying to map what we thought was queer spaces. Mm -hmm. Uh, into Copenhagen. And then the second day, uh, we started visiting some of these spaces. And the third day, we continued and also tried to interact with some of these spaces. So, and it, and I saw there was a big sort of need for that conversation because it was like eight, 20, 40 people uh, arriving at this workshop. So the different days. Um, and then having that experience, I thought I was invited to Tijuana to do an artist residency uh, at, a, at a space called, called uh, Louis Velasquez, which was just placed right on the border uh, of, uh, of the U.S. border, just on the other side. I could hear the revolving door of the border wow. every day oh, from wow. my residency. <laughs> it was quite intense. Wow. Anyway, but I was thinking, let's try and put it out side a different cultural context and do the workshop in Tijuana. And, uh, and so together with some of the, the, the artists that ran this space, it was an artist run uh, residency, uh, we created a workshop, but we immediately got into some problems like queer doesn't translate into Spanish. And the people that were using it were mostly a few queer artists, but everyone else sort of didn't understand that. Yeah. And uh, and so it became like a more like a LGBT sort of workshop looking <laughs> at space. Um, but also the, the sort of conservatism of the border because of uh, um, because of all the problems that there is and all the sort yeah. of eco economy of the, of the border have created a very religious conservative society and that sort of that oppression sort of meant that the LGBT community was more much more inclusive that mm. you would experience in Denmark mm. um, but in many ways I sort of felt it like a, a 
like a, a failure in some ways, you know, that just sort of I felt that it didn't really translate into uh, to the, the specific culture of, yeah. uh, of Tijuana. And also the whole linguistic was a kind of also a problem. There was sort of different strategies that was in place. And uh, and so I was sort of thinking about that and talking about with friends and, and colleagues and, you know, the people I've met in these workshops. Uh, I mean, it was super interesting still. I mean, the border is, I mean, such a, uh, the economy in the border is such an interesting yeah. uh, place because you have, you know, you have, uh, I mean, you all kind of illegal trades you have in the forefront. You have you know, a lot of prostitution, partly because you have an American uh, uh, base just on the other side. You know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, like uh, you can buy everything. I mean, uh, with pharmaceutical products, whatever. It's like a, it's sort of a, a, a lot of illegal trades happens there. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's kind of that fabric that, that the border creates as that it creates, a, there's a global part of it as well, you know, uh, a lot of U.S. factories placed themselves in Tijuana because then they didn't have to fulfill uh, uh, workers' rights or uh, environmental rights or whatever. Um, so, so from there, we, I was sort of thinking about it, I was talking to my friends, and I was like, we should do something, try and, try and put this together in a publication, but we sort of felt that if you do two cities, it's just like a dialectic, which I felt was a problem. So then it becomes like, uh, compare Copenhagen to Tijuana. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want that. So I thought I needed a third space. And I had done a lot of sort of research in Beirut already because I had been uh, researching uh, uh, Solidaire, which is sort of like the urban renewal company that was taking place which is sort of like hyper-capitalism, I would call it, mm -hmm. in, of downtown Beirut. Um, but in that meeting, I had also met a non-binary sexuality that was sort of in, in, in a struggle because of uh, 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 sort of the commercial globalism that sort of pushed a, a binary idea of sexuality onto the city or the fabric of the city. Right. And so I felt like these different crossroads of Beirut was very interesting as a sort of a different city to the two others. Hmm. Uh, and then I thought it was interesting that, that all three cities were at the, at the water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So was, I like this idea of fluidity and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, <laughs> as, as, like, as you say in the introduction as well, like that it's kind of separated from this um, Anglo-Saxon idea of queer. Because mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of that, like, and especially, I guess, kind of like queer as a word has kind of spread out much more, especially in the last like few years. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it is like, it is a super like, it's got certain roots within like English language and Anglo-Saxon, like, like it wasn't a thing. And I know like in Portugal, it wasn't a thing until very recently. Yeah. And a mm. lot of this like growing of queer is also like, it is a super like English movement almost like yeah. it is not something that has a root in other in other countries and that's quite interesting ah. to go somewhere else and what is also interesting is that it can also be used as a strategy for yeah. uh, different quite different ways of inclusion mm -hmm. like uh, the gay organization which is called Helem uh, in Beirut which means something like the dream I think um, you saw under the uh, when the uh, the bombardment of, from Israel in, was it 2006 or when was it? 
uh, when Israel bombed uh, mm -hmm. Beirut, mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of uh, refugees, and Helem was one of the big organizations sort of solving the problem of refugees inside the country. And so they felt very linked to a Palestinian cause, and sort of that fitted into their umbrella of being queer. And I thought as a strategy, I thought that was kind of interesting to look at as well. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, yeah, the Anglo-Saxon, of course, is like this profilation of, uh, of uh, identities that really happened as I see it in the 90s and which, you know, Judy Butler and others sort of yeah. try to theorize and, and sort of people not fitting into this consumer image uh, of the white gay male uh, as a consumer, mm -hmm. which was basically, as I see it, sort of a myth created yeah. to, to obtain uh, power in some way. Yeah. Or to be a, be more accepted. And so, yeah. and so in Copenhagen, you saw like uh, groups like Donst uh, came, Donst, which later became more performative group, but it started out as a social uh, space for hangout for people, uh, queer identities that didn't fit into others, uh, LGBT spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and so you saw that also in Denmark, sort of similar to US. Um, and I think also, and that also, that development really happened maybe early in Denmark because of uh, of uh, the partnership laws. Okay. Well, um, in the introduction of the book, um, you also explore the co-opting of the original Stone Stonewall riots by the Gay Liberation Front the following year after the original mm -hmm. event took place. Um, which you suggest might have taken the point of the riots out of their context and perhaps even if inadvertently turned them into a pantomime of the struggle. What parallels can you draw from that action into what is happening today with LGBTQI spaces within capitalist metropolis in the West? I mean, earlier we just talked about the prides and you see how they are co-opted in many ways. Um, I. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily see what the Gay Liberation Front as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, I mean that's important to say because it could be. I I, I didn't want to portray as a bad thing. It really started out by me googling images, and I sort of I was getting confused, which was Stonewall Riot and what was the thing that happened the year after, and it was sort of like it looked very different as well. Mm. I mean, just the people in the images were very different. The sort of uh, you know, from the street kids to the sort of more middle class, uh, more happy people walking down the street, it was more white, you know. Um, but I mean, this was Marxist, on the other hand, which today would not fit into that uh, LGBT community, which is often like me, sort of being uh, more suppressed into the queer community. Mm -hmm. and, and I experienced that identity shift, you know, where I suddenly didn't fit into the gay community, but I was more into the queer because I was not really interesting in consuming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, like, as you were saying, like, we need to, like, it's not necessarily a negative thing or it wasn't necessarily their intention, mm. but it is, like, how things stay in history, right? Like, a movement where, like, most of the people were white, cis, gay men, it's obviously going to have much more traction or stay much more in history than the original movement that was led by queers of color and like trans people. Mm. 
Yeah, and there's, there's also some myth about that in, in because Stonewall Bar itself wasn't necessarily the bar of, uh, of people of color. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but the street kids were outside were yeah. much more of color. So, I mean, well, I mean this, ma yeah. this, ma this bar was also run by the Italian Mafia, so it, you know, <clears throat> there's also this, this sort of like, uh, we have a tendency to also create like a, 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 a sort of a rose red color yeah. on, on, on the history, which I think is also problematic. Yeah, it's like romanticizing. Exactly. Like those but, riots would happen so often as well, right? Because like people of color would try to get into the bar or the police would come. It's just that uh, in that day, things went a bit further. Yeah. But it wasn't like it was super friendly for everyone. Uh, but definitely you saw afterwards in history, because the one that actually had the power to tell the story <clears throat> were not uh, people, transgender people or yeah. people of color. And that was sort of the bigger problem, I think, because of course it was a lot of uh, cross-dressing and transgender uh, related to this bar. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, what my point is in the book is sort of also to think about why has the pride maybe become so diluted today? <clears throat> why are we not uh, using it as a, excuse me, <clears throat> as, a, as a tool for our struggle, as a weapon for our struggle? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it's because it wasn't, the struggle itself, we are celebrating these people, we're celebrating the people that celebrated the struggle. Yeah, yeah, Basically. rather than supporting the people that were leading the struggle. Yeah, and that's also funny, I mean, I said, like in the book, I, 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 I met, you know, found some people writing about it, like, like this guy that was in the, in the Stonewall riot, he called the, 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 the commemoration the year after, like the first run because these people were so afraid of retaliation and the people that were in Stonewall were not afraid of retaliation because they didn't have anything to lose. Yeah. 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 And also, I also want to point out that the person that actually sort of initiated the riot was a lesbian that threw the first stone. Yeah. Oh, really? I mean, just, yeah, yeah so just like, you know, it's, it's more complex than we sort of imagine, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> these social meetings. And it's funny because it's like, it's like it's almost, it's almost like we put history on a binary where like, um, like I, I know that every time that Pride comes about or that like Stonewall celebrations come about, everyone's like from like queer communities is like, oh, Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick, and that's mm, like and completely factual. Yeah. Like it's not true at all. But it's no, in exactly. reaction to people being like, oh, it was like a white guy that threw the first brick. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like we need to go the other binary when actually history ah. is much more nuanced. It's a lesbian, a white yeah. lesbian. That <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so dares to actually throw a stone. But, <clears throat> but of course, the anger was there, and they, they yeah. could, of course, that's why it erupted. And and but I was also wondering. Sorry, I was also wondering why wasn't the earlier riots more? Uh, why were they commemorated? You know, why wasn't Compton Cafeteria? Why wasn't Dunkin' Donuts in uh, Los Angeles? Or what I just found, uh, there's another one that was actually earlier on in, in uh, New Orleans. Uh, why weren't uh, these places remembered or commemorated? I mean, there's, I mean, of course, there's a crossroad, of course, build up anger and also maybe, maybe if, if it had been a bar 
with more vulnerable subjects, it wouldn't have happened? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, all these questions I think is interesting to ask ourselves. Yeah. Do you think it's also because the, um, the Gay Liberation Front, a year later, decided that they were going to do a reenactment of what happened in a way that maybe they didn't do with all these other things? Like, so in the end, what you say on the book, or what you say in that introduction, um, maybe what actually brought this to the level that it did is the fact that someone, a year after it happened, was like, oh, let's celebrate it. Because maybe uh, well, I think it's more celebrated in the same way. I think, I mean, they didn't think it as a celebrated, they think it fought it more as a demonstration and mm -hmm. they were really afraid of going on the street because they were not used to that. No. So, and, but I think it was also, I mean, uh, the Gay Liberation Front people were very engaged and they had a lot of debate about, you know, should they, should they, should they stay in the gay, you know, in the, on the, on the gay issues or should yeah. they, a lot of them were already sort of entangled in, in, in crossovers, like intersections between the Vietnam War protest, you know, Black Panther, whatever. I mean, so there was a lot of sort of this, this solidarity mm -hmm. idea as well mm -hmm. that was very much in place. Mm -hmm. And so I think they sort of felt that the moment was, was there for it somehow, politically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so next. Um, what so with this like commodification of queer spaces and queer friendly spaces, um, that often come hand in hand with gentrification of working class or less popular areas of cities. Um, it, they often come with a promise of improving public spaces and create further wealth and make areas safer. Um, and also, like, yeah, from your work and your research, how do you think this affects local queer communities, or how this how does this affect that dialogue between local communities and queer people in these areas? Well, I think in general, um, I think it's helpful to think about these spaces as powerless spaces. Mm. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'm sort of using uh, Elmgrain and Darkset. Uh, they made a nice publication called Powerless Spaces. Uh, but anyway, I'm using that as sort of this idea of uh, it's not spaces that was designed for that inhabitation. Mm -hmm. So, so like the park, you know, I was mentioning earlier. So. Yeah. So it's uh, when it's not designed for it, it's like a, it's a vulnerable space. And so the designer think they're designing something in an absolute space. But the thing is that they don't encounter relation, relational spaces like, you know, spaces in habitation change over time or also the relational part of it, you know, the social uh, 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 circle of the space is also changing uh, all the time. So this idea that we know what a space is mm. or that we can take uh, uh, control over space is a very pro problematic notion. Mm. But of course, from a design point of view, it's always sort of like uh, uh, designers always see a space more absolute um, and, and, and they think they sort of understand the space and then they design something and then you would see that it doesn't really, some, some economic of the space will change. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, with sort of this gentrification of public space, but it's also really privatization of public yeah. space. I mean, uh, you, if you go to Harbourfront in Copenhagen, you don't actually know if you walk in a public or a private space. Yeah. You will entering in and out. 
Yeah. And what does that mean to a public space? You know, that means that, that it can be controlled by uh, others at police, it could be social uh, security or whatever. There's sort of like all these different entities going on that you, it's hard to read. I actually think that in some ways that public space in many ways is lost. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think uh, that's also one of the reasons why a lot of queer activities happens uh, in the private and in, uh, in, uh, through online uh, activities and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but I mean, the, the game is on. I mean, we can still try and reclaim it. And, and so that's what I did in the park, you know, yeah. and it became sort of a whole uh, news media and, and uh, uh, like the a later mayor of, uh, of Copenhagen started talking about it. He was gay as himself. And, he thought it should be okay for gay people to cruise and, you know, and so forth. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because when it's when it's a when it's a public space, like there's, it feels like you kind of have a different agency over yeah. it, and your like your experiences and what you do in that space and the way that you use it or like how you queer it, I guess, um, all of that is kind of possible and you can do that. Mm. But with privatization you're abiding to someone else's rules and that's when like you stop having that agency and you stop being able to use space in a different way mm. um and that kills a lot of like congregation like you you stop being able to connect with people in the same way in 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 in, in what used to be a public space and you mm. need to start like reverting back to like let's have queer venues or let's have queer clubs because we can't really be in the street in the same way anymore because mm. There's no but the, the problem is just, you know, because the, the, the idea of the public is that it's public and it's free, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, and the problem is, and where we are moving these communities to are less public mm -hmm. and, and, and often costy, you know? Yeah. And, and that's also, uh, if we talk about Beirut, which were interesting, you know, that you can be, uh, uh, um, I'm just saying, a gay man as an example, and you can go to gay clubs and bars, which are really expensive. Mm. But then if you go to uh, uh, the cheap uh, uh, cinema or some of the cruising spaces in public, uh, you can be arrested and harassed by the police. Mm. So, so it's sort of like this interesting, you know, who have right to be who they are. Well, it's mm. class, isn't it? Like yeah, it's exactly class, and and I think the big issue for LGBTQ and so forth is that in the equation we talk very little about class. Yeah, and when we talk about intersectionality, yeah. it's almost inclusively class is never into that intersection. Yeah. Oh no, like yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's an idea that queerness kind of erases class. Yeah. And that your exactly. class is not important because you're queer. Yeah. And class is never a part of any intersection or like most of the times it isn't a part of like when people talk about intersectionality they're not talking about class. Yeah. Um, and and the problem with intersectionality is that I mean if you like, read Kimberly Greenshaw's text uh, like mapping the margins. Yeah. It's uh, Yes, she, she makes a tool that makes it apparent that we need intersections like black battered women needs to meet from themselves because mm -hmm. their needs are not met either in, in the women's community or in the black community. Mm -hmm. 
So that's why there's a need for uh, intersections. But really, I feel what we don't talk to about in intersectionality is that what Kimberly tries to get across is it's actually a, a, an idea of overcome postmodernism. It's actually an idea that we can uh, talk together because we intersect each other identities. Mm -hmm, so yeah. here's the possibility of new communities, but that's the only thing we don't talk about. Is it's become a competition about how many intersections you have yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, without class, minus yeah. class. Yeah, yeah, minus class. Because sort of class is sort of the bump on this, you know, mm -hmm. this structure, this idea. Mm -hmm. um, well, because class is still like a lot of the fabric that upholds mm -hmm. like these divisions in that way, right? Like yeah. it's always like the final thing that we don't talk about. Mm. It's also seen as and something that you can overcome as well, mm. right? Like it's seen as something that like from a mainstream perspective is seen as something that you can overcome, that you can go oh, up in it, terms of class. It's like the American dream. Yeah, kind yeah. Of. exactly. Or, or, or you have a, a, like, a, a, what's his name, the sociologist, French, that wrote a book, Return to Rheem. Mm. Uh, mm. Dieter I can never remember his name. Anyway, that, that talks about how he uh, uh, escaped the working class uh, history and he went to Paris and he lived sort of like a, a more high society gay life and, and became a famous sociologist. But he, he sort of felt ashamed about his background because what used to be a proud sort of communist uh, community had become like this xenophobic uh, working class community. Mm. Um, and I think, there's, I think there's a lot of that sort of also happening. People sort of escaping, you know, people come out, they leave their home and they sort of create other identities. Um, but I wanted to, to, to just bring one anecdotal story about this. It's like, so when I, when I came out, I, I, I identify as a gay man. Mm -hmm. and, and so then the partnership happened. And uh, at the time, I, I had no, no feeling for marriage. I would go out with uh, actually like sort of a, a, a post-gay liberation front people. And we would wear dresses and then we walk out with uh, divorce papers to the fancy gay cafes and people were of course so mad at us <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then uh, um, so so in that profilation i sort of i sort of understood myself to become a, a queer man instead of a gay man because I, I i felt i didn't fit it into sort of this narrative and then lately you know in the last years i have had this from being a queer man, uh, or him or his, I have uh, I've experienced like uh, when was that? Like I was in Oakland in a in a in a gallery, and this uh, this queer gallerist came in, and and she wanted to talk to me, and then she looked at me, and then she she thought I I mean she thought I didn't I how could I identify as queer because I didn't look queer, right? Yeah. So there's also a new thing happening where yeah. it's like. It's like a queer identification, which sort mm. of is sort of tied to consumerism in some way. Mm. Where, of course, there's then there are queer identities that don't have that power. So we're seeing a new sort of split in some way. Mm. Well, because what? And like, so, yes. Yeah. What this? Like, I feel like what this. I've been like kind of living through that a lot. 
But like, um, I feel like what this commodification of like queerness has done is just it's fixed it as this thing. So like, capitalism mm. had to give it an image, so yeah. it's recognized. And now like mm-hmm. everything that escapes that image cannot be queer. Yeah. Um, and then you get exactly. stuck with like it's not really about the ideology of it. It's not really about what it means. It's not really about queerness. It's about how it looks. And it's just yeah. another. Yeah. Like, because everything is an image, you were talking about that as well in the yeah. introduction, like... Oh, yeah, so what happened to this um, uh, queer umbrella, you know? So yeah. what happened to the people that, that are identified with uh, uh, a non-capitalist structure or yeah. people of color or people that don't have the, the means to sort of, or idea? I mm-hmm. mean, also, it really also comes into passing or who wants to pass and vulnerability and, you know, there's a lot of... It's a complex issue again, but it's it's... It's just interesting how there's a shift. Yeah. And yeah. I think you're totally right about what you're saying. Yeah. Well, it's this discussions of labels, like also like with, um, there's, I was reading this by this um, health um, action group in, trans health action group in London, um, where, and they specifically say at one point that they were like, um, it wasn't, it wasn't enough for us to identify as trans anymore. We had to specifically say we're trans and anti-capitalist and anti-fascist. Mm. Like, cause one, like, because that label of trans or that label of queer stopped, like, it doesn't mean any of that anymore. Mm. Like, you can you can now supposedly be queer and be a fascist, or you can be queer and and, and, and completely live and mm. embedded in, in capitalism. So now it's like, for actually for that identity to make sense, you need to con- constantly be adding other, like, words at the end, because mm. queerness is not enough, or it became something that, yeah, doesn't really reflect those values anymore. Mm. I, I don't know where what your question was again, but um, <laughs> we uh, might have no, we kind of slid out. Like <laughs> to be yeah, honest, yeah. the next question mm. we've kind of been answering it throughout, um, but maybe I think it's interesting. To yeah, yeah. Also, because you've mentioned yeah. internet as well. Yeah. Like, because um, we we're talking about not being able to like have the public space to meet up, and then people yeah. meet on internet and everything. Yeah. So, like, the question is about uh, how do you think globalization has affected and or contributed to the assimilation of events like pride and representations of queer identities in general? <laughs> Can you say that again? That's yes, a very of course. Question. Yeah. I want, just want to where to start it. Yeah. yeah. How, do you, <laughs> how do you think globalization has affected and or contributed to the assimilation of events like pride and representations of queer identities in general? I mean, I think globalism and capitalist globalism is what you see happening is, is all about homogeneity, you know? Mm-hmm. It's because that's that's where capitalism works best. Mm. You know, that's when things are similar. Yeah. Uh, and that, and, and of course, it's a very, under a certain umbrella similar. So it's, it's a, you know, often a very Christian sort of idea of what capitalism yeah. is as well. Um, it's, it's always, it's always amazing getting out of this uh, hegemony of capitalism. And you see that when you get out of the Western world. I mean, if you go to Middle East a little bit, but if you go to Africa, other places, you're like, wow, people can actually be different. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's in many ways a uh, think differently, and it's many may many ways uh, a liberation in some way. Uh, but that's also a problem because we think sort of as the Western world as sort of like everything and yeah. as a universal idea, yeah. and and it's not. It's far from. Mm-hmm. But there's also this 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 
idea of what it is a queer identity or what it looks like or what we perceive it as is also sort of a westernized idea or a westernized image right mm -hmm. in many ways yeah well it's also fixating right because mm. the theory is it's everything else you know i mean it's it's like a, it's an it's it's everything else than what the other matter is, right? So it's like, a, it's, it has a much more fluidity to it, which where suddenly when you start identifying, that was my point a little earlier, when you start identifying as queer, mm -hmm. you're fixating it more. And, and, but also you have the possibility to make it more powerless space. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can actually also think about, can we design public space for our needs, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, either uh, legally or illegally, you know, yeah. <laughs> but but we can sort of think about how, what kind of spaces we create. I mean, also when we think about how many bars do you go to where there is a, a women's and a men bathroom, you know, yeah. why can't we design that differently in our own community, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting because it's that fixating that um, I think it's like obviously there's a lot of people that really have this need or like it's really good for them to identify as queer or that's like the closest word that they have um, and they're quite precious about that identification but it's interesting because it's exactly that identification that fixates what queer is meant to be and after after it's fixed it's really easy for capitalism to co-opt it right because while it's fluid they don't really have a target if that makes sense while you keep changing and while things are fluid, there's not really a target to be like, mm. we're going to profit on this identity because that identity is shifting constantly. Yeah. But after it becomes just one thing, it's kind of gone. And, the, and the, but the worst part is sort of then the people that sort of don't suddenly fit into that fixation, you know, mm -hmm. and that will happen when you yeah. fix something. Yeah. I mean, it, and, 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 I mean, I, the sad part is, you know, where I think the GLBT, what it was called in old days, community, was working as inclusion because it was oppressed. And I think the sad part is now that the, the GLBT community has become self-oppressive, right? So then it creates a queer community, mm -hmm. the sort of our parallel community. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes self-oppressive as well because it gets fixated to some degree. And it's a kind of interesting where I'm saying maybe it's time to try and build bridges, you know? Mm. I mean, because also in that profiliation, you know, in the end, we all become more powerless. Yeah. Well, because we're yeah. just slowly getting separated into smaller and smaller entities, yeah. Which yeah. is much less powerful than a union. Yeah. Uh, 